It's Thursday, March the 4th, and you're watching Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical considerations in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as a Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. I'll be your moderator today. That also means I get to introduce the stars of this show, the real talent, the Goodfellows, as we jokingly refer to them, beginning with my friend John Cochran. John's an economist and the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. Hey, John, how are you today? I'm doing great, and I'm doing even better because Ayan is joining us today. Welcome, Ayan. It's just a great pleasure to have you with us. Second Thank you. That. I second that. John, our second good fellow, and look at him. He is becoming more California by the day. That is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fraud and Michelle Aljami Senior Fellow. He's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Battlegrounds, The Fault of Defend the Free World. Hello, H.R. Hi, Bill. Hi, John. Ayan, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Great to see you, H.R. <laughs> Now, normally, our third good fellow is Neil Ferguson, the renowned historian and author. Ordinarily, he joins us from what I like to joke as his wilderness outpost, but Neil is not here today. Joining us instead, and I think John and HR will agree we've upgraded, is uh, someone who, when she's not selling, uh, trying to solve the world's problems, she lives under the same roof as Neil, and that is the one and only Ion Hersey Alley. Ion Hersey Alley is a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution. And that's just the beginning of the story. Born and raised in Somalia, she fled her native land. Ion moved to the Netherlands. She mastered Dutch. She became a member of the Dutch parliament. She would go on to produce a short film on the subjugation of women by Islam that resulted in her receiving a death threat that continues to this day. In addition to being a human rights activist, Ion Hersey Ali is an international best-selling author. Her latest book, Prey, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights, explores the long-term ramifications of mass migration from Islamic-majority countries and the effect that's had on the rights of women in Europe. Ion, welcome to Goodfellows. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. And what a delight to be with Joan and HR. Um, and look very much forward to seeing you in person. It's been too long. Yes, we all agree. And uh, somewhere Neil Ferguson should be very worried. This is how you get bumped off of shows when somebody better comes <laughs> along. But uh, we want to get into the book, Ion. There's a lot we want to cover with regards to Europe and your great studies on the continent. Uh, first, I'd like to ask you a bit of a personal question, which is this. You're growing up in Somalia, Ion. You're 10 years old. You're a 10-year-old girl in Somalia. Did you have dreams? And to the extent that you had dreams, did you ever dream that your life would take you to where you are today? A teeny tiny correction. I didn't make it to 10 years in Somalia. My family left when I was about six or seven years old. Maybe it was eight years old. I was very little. Um, but uh, when I, I turned 10 years old in Ethiopia, it was about 10 and a half when I went to Kenya. And did I have dreams back then? Um, maybe I'll say I had lots of nightmares. Um, and one of them, one of my night, nightmares was ending up like the women that surrounded me, the women who looked after me, like my mother and my grandmother. And they seemed to be powerless, helpless. And that was my nightmare. So if you look at the flip side of that, the dream would be when I grow up, I'm going to be different. I just didn't know what that meant at the age of 10, but I was going to be different. It is a fascinating story, on, and I could spend the course of this hour asking more questions about this, but we have a book to talk about, a lot of very serious issues. I'm going to turn this over to John Cochran now, because John John is just brimming with questions for you in HR. So, John, fire away. Well, let me let me start here. Um, 
cognizant that most of our listeners won't have uh, read the book. So we, we want to give you a chance to tell the story. One of the things that I'm most curious about, and I'll be asking HR too, because he's a, my other, he spent time in the Middle East. I have not. Uh, so I've never ventured uh, that far. What's the, tell us a little what the experience is like for a typical immigrant. Uh, one of your typical young men who gets in trouble, if I can put it politely, where do they come from? How do they get to Europe? What's it like when they get to Europe? What are kind of the rules of the game they have to play? I don't think we understand uh, what that experience is like. And, and, and we'll get to the important part of the book, which is the experience of women, but what forms people who cause this trouble for our societies? So um, thank you so much for that question, because I think it really is a very, very important question. Um, if you are a young man growing up in Syria, I haven't been to Syria, but I know a lot of Syrians. Um, if you're growing up in Somalia, if you're growing up in Afghanistan, if you're growing up in any of the places where HR served, you uh, are growing up in a context of A, honor and shame, where the men are the protectors of the honor of the family, the extended family, the clan, the tribe. Um, you're also growing up in a context where all of that is either breaking down or has completely broken down. And as a young boy, young man, you're being asked to protect something that's gone or that's going. So the, the honor is gone or the, the social structure in which that system, what, what has broken down in your view? So the social structure is broken down. If, I'm trying to put myself in my brother's feet. My brother is only one year older than me. And as we are growing up, there are demands that are made of me, but there are demands that are made of him. And as uh, this little boy is being told, um, the honor of the family lies in your hands. The family is breaking down. The social order is breaking down. Uh, the clan and tribe order is breaking down. Uh, we, ha we are going from one dictatorship to the next. So it's very confusing for that little boy to understand exactly what he is protecting. Fast forward, when we get into our teenage years, he is told to protect the family honor by controlling my movements, my sister's movements, and the same message is being given to young men his age. A, that you, it's your responsibility to control the freedom of movement of the women. Very, very confusing. Then you get into civil wars. And when we talk about civil war, at least in the context of Somalia, you're basically fighting your cousins. It's very difficult to explain to a non-Somali what the genocide that's going on in Somalia is all about. It's about the clan, it's about the family. Um, and so that young boy, that young man is also being asked to go to the battlefield, to go to a war for his side of, you know, his clan, his bloodline. Very, very confusing. Grows up in a context of not just breakdown, but heightened violence. And the more violent you are, uh, the more you're admired the more violent you are, the higher the chances that you survive. 
the violence is not just, at times to an outsider, it may look wanton and random and, and that's there. And I think HR, you've seen that in the places that you've been deployed to or where you've deployed your men. But to the inner circles of the clan, it does make sense. And one way that it makes sense is just make sure that you're more violent than anyone else. You're lethal. Now take young boys and men who grow up in contexts like that by the thousands, by the hundreds of thousands, and then bring them to Europe. And all the survival skills that they've learned, all the norms, all the values that they've learned, it's just the flip side, it's totally the opposite. Now you have a woman bossing you around, that starts the day you arrive. Because as you walk into any European country, you are welcomed, there's this reception center and the person sitting behind the counter is a female and she's not covered. And from her own perspective, she looks at you, she may have compassion for you. She sees you are coming from a broken down society, not the details of it, just, you know, on a superficial level, there's a lot, a lot of bloodshed. So Europeans have been told, be welcoming, but she's like you. And that, it just turns your whole world upside down. I'm so glad, John, that you asked that question because no one has told the story from the perspective of the young boy, the young male. Uh, and and it's a story that has to be told, and I don't think I'm doing it enough justice. Well, HR, you you have met many of these young men uh, in very strenuous circumstances, and and their efforts, the ones who are violent, the ones who are trying to get along. Uh, it actually reminds me much. There are neighborhoods in uh, the United States that are honor cultures where you have to survive by being violent, much at a much lower level than what's going on. Uh, but this is a, uh, a universal thing. Uh, do you have insights for us on, on, on where, where these young men come from and, and what's in their brains on their way to Europe? And then we'll, we'll meet them in Europe in a second. Well, just to highlight what Ayana's already said, this is a struggle really between modernity and, and, and uh, those who want to keep in place a system that is based in large measure on Sharia, uh, and and brutal Sharia. Uh, this is this is uh, you know the, this this uh, religious order and law uh, that represses any kind of, of human freedom or and is it a, it's a misogynistic culture as well. Th those who are who want to keep that warped order in place, which I would argue, and Ayan has a different view of this, I know, is based largely on a, a perverted interpretation of, of Islam. They, they, what they want to do is destroy any kind of order that would challenge their, the, the, you know, the, the order that they want to impose on people. And this is why, you know, when, it, when groups like Al Qaeda, these Salafi jihadist organizations come in, who are the first people they kill? Tribal leaders, because they want to impose their own order. And, 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 uh, and then what, the, what do they do then? Is they, they, they take all the, uh, the children, adolescents in particular, and put them into schools where they systematically brainwash them. Uh, in Pakistan, it, this is particularly egregious in terms of the scale. These are essentially factories of, uh, of jihadists uh, where these, these young boys, uh, these are adolescents who are typically seeking some form of affirmation and they are brainwashed and, and they are actually taught to hate. It is a system, and Ayana, I'd love to hear what you think about this. If you think I'm, if, if I have this about right, but I, I think of it as a cycle of, of ignorance 
ignorance that is used to foment hatred, and then hatred that is used to justify violence against innocence. It's also important to point out that in these horrible you know, madrasas, they're not schools, they're really, you know, they, they're really uh, you know, brainwashing facilities. They, they, these graduates often then go on to into organizations where, you know, initially they're hauling ammunition, for example, or they're doing tasks uh, for, you know, for those who are committing the, 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 the murders and, and, uh, and terrorizing people. Uh, but then oftentimes they are systematically dehumanized. Uh, and yeah. I'll just tell you, there's one story of a, of a you know, this is a 13-year-old, 14-year-old boy who we captured in the city of Tlaifer in, in Iraq. And he looked out of place. He looked out of place because he was on an assassination mission uh, in, in a certain portion of the city. So uh, our Iraqi forces and our forces detained him. And in the course of, of debriefing him, he, he bore his soul and what happened to him. His parents got a knock on the door and they said, give us your son uh, or we'll kill your whole family. So they took him and they put him in a so-called mosque with an imam. Well, this imam had a fourth grade education. He was largely illiterate. And, and what this imam did was run the, the, the beheading cell. They would capture Shia, uh, those, those who were different, who believed in a different strain of Islam uh, and, and, and who were, you know, who were, uh, who were deemed, you know, the, uh, as as the enemy and and uh, and targets of of murder, and then they would they would bring them into this into this mosque to be beheaded, and this young person had was the the leg holder in beheadings. Now imagine how horrible that was, right? And he was also sexually abused uh, in, in the most horrible ways you can imagine. And, uh, and in the debriefing, what he was most concerned about and what he was most disappointed in is that the so-called imam did not eat, did not wash uh, after abusing him sexually and before prayer time. So, I mean, th these these are, are, are people uh, who are the worst uh, of all humanity, I, I think. And and uh, and these victims are, are the young people uh, who are brought into these in, in, these these organizations and then systematically dehumanized. Uh, what this young person wound up doing is mapping out the entire terrorist organization in the city for us because he had been passed around from battalion to battalion. This was the Kitab Rizul Allah, the battalions of the one true God. Um, and, um, and and it was his debriefing by the social services of the, the city there. That also helped us expose, you know, the the brutality, uh, the inhumanity, and and I, I would say that these are, you know, the, these are these are criminals who use a perverted interpretation of Islam to cloak, you know, their 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 criminal and heinous acts. But uh, it, it is is a huge problem in, across the region. I think it's worth pointing out, you know, that who the victims, right? The the the, the vast majority of the victims of, of these of these terrorist organizations are fellow Muslims and. And it really is important for us to support those who reject, you know, the perverted interpretation of religion, religion to, to justify these, you know, these horrible acts. So we'll, we'll get to Europe. I want to get to Europe sooner or later, but you guys are being too fascinating about the Middle East. Uh, Ayan, you, you are mentioned uh, uh, that it has not always been thus. And I think that's important for our listeners to hear that in the 1950s and 60s in, in Kabul and Tehran, Women were okay. fairly free to go around. And you, you, uh, as I got it, which I'd like to hear more about, uh, there was a political change, really, that this yeah. religious brand of Islam take over. And what I'm learning now, I was trying to understand, my question was gonna be, 
Tell us how this happened politically, that the this religious extremism gained such political uh, favor. But you seem to be laying out a story of the old-fashioned autocrats kind of losing power, um, the clan family system kind of falling apart, and mm-hmm. now there's a a new, which is it's a it's a larger than clan, a new system coming in, maybe to some extent like the Protestant Reformation Wars. It's organized around religion, and, and that is taking the place of something that's falling apart. That can you help us first? Tell us how it was, how things got worse. I found it fascinating that you mentioned that it got worse even in the UK, that women were freer in the 18th century than the 19th. Uh, but um, but what's the political force that is behind uh, this, this rise uh, of Islam and, and what it's doing to women? So the first thing I'll say is, just like you, I'm uh, hugely fascinated by what HR says, because even though HR is white American male who uh, comes into Afghanistan, you, you are HR exposed to settings that as a female, even if I could be an Afghani woman, right, they would never be exposed to. So when you describe, you know, the relationship, when a young man is taken to a madrasa, the brainwashing factory, uh, when he's taught to be the leg holder and he's trained to be a beheader, the women in, in that context don't know what that young man is going through. When he comes home and some of them, not all of them, but some of them repeat those cruelties or they, they can be, as women, sometimes we see them as just having no sense of compassion or empathy. Uh, maybe what you call psychopaths in the West. Uh, it is, Something, for instance, it's totally possible that you have seen that and local women have not seen that. Maybe even local men haven't seen it. In, in those societies, you also have silos and maybe those silos are way more powerful and more impenetrable than the silos that we have in, in the West. Now, having said that, uh, John, I also want to say to you, um, it's maybe in one hour not even possible to go beyond this conversation and then go straight into the subject of prayer and like what's happening in Sweden and France. It's going to confuse. Yeah, it is going to confuse the listener, the viewer. Maybe we will have to devote more sessions to this. Why don't we? Why don't we go straight to pray then, Ion? And uh, let me uh, let me barge in and ask you this. Uh, Before we go to pray, I just do want to. I want to address the 1950s thing because that was. Let's say, just look at it as a these encounters between the West and Islam, and look at it in layers. Layers in terms of power, you know, who's in charge versus the oppressed and the oppressed, all of that stuff. But also look at it in terms of, you know, a historical timeline. So there's the encounter in the 21st century where America is hit and then America goes to Afghanistan and Iraq and all these Middle Eastern places and they want to make sure that doesn't happen again. And people are discovering, oh, my God, what the heck is this? Then there's the 1950s situation, and that is... Um, a different encounter in a different time of history where there was colonialism and Western, these European powers went there and 
made use of their power to say, you, you guys, you're not going to treat women like that. We're going to get women out and we're going to give them all of these. Uh, uh, we'll bring the emancipation narrative to Cairo, Kabul, Tehran, Mogadishu, wherever these uh, European powers were. And so it is true, you can see, you can look at pictures in, from the 1950s and early 1960s in any of these places and see women in the open space, um, public space, um, that look, the streets look like Paris or London or Stockholm, whatever. Right. And Bill, I'm going to take you exactly where you want me to take you, but that is the picture you see, the superficial picture you see of the streets, it has behind it uh, history, hundreds of years of history. And women like me think that colonialism, um, European powers coming into our space and changing things wasn't all bad because it gave us so much. It broke that cycle of violence. And so it was welcome. And so we went to school and dressed as we pleased and we loved to meet the opposite sex. And we were thrilled by the, that particular encounter. I know it is dominant and dominating and you have lots of names for it. Um, and then there is obviously a response to that from the local men who say, this just can't be right. Not only are we colonized, not only did these people come and invade us, invade our space and uh, lay over their history with ours, um, but look at what they're doing to our women. And I, I don't know if it's possible to tell this story completely without revisiting the sense of humiliation that those men felt and feel to this day uh, that even though there is the colonial powers have gone away the ramifications of that particularly in the relationship between men and women is still ongoing and a very not all but many of them are really angry really angry and upset by that and, and you, you echo their loss of political power as well. Uh, we could go on, as as everyone said. Let's 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 hop. Let's go to Europe. So our young man is now somehow. The rules are you have to somehow walk to Europe. You show up. You get asylum. You sit in a camp for a while, surrounded only by other young men like yourself. You are not allowed to work. Eventually, I guess uh, a case gets through. You are now allowed to work, and you're set off onto the streets of Europe. So let's let's get to the heart of the book of of um, what what happens with primarily young men like that. But to the extent to which that the system is at fault, I want to hear your thoughts on that as well. So that is then a different level. Again, another context where there is an encounter between the West and Islam, not on the battlefield in HR's context, not, you know, the colonialism that ended for some countries in the 50s and 60s, but now it is people from that side, from Islam, who are coming into the West, seeking compassion, seeking empathy, seeking the opportunity for a new way of uh, living and life, but still ingrained, uh, still, you know, uh, formed and shaped by their political, cultural, religious context. And 
in a way it is, um, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of those young men. It is humiliating on, it's even more humiliating because now you're coming as a beggar. The society that's receiving you is not coming to, they're not invading you, they're not uh, imposing their rules on you, nothing. They're just saying, you're welcome here. We'll give you food, shelter, find your way about. But that society, the welcoming society in this case, is really not explaining how things are different. Number one. Number two, the number and this is just sheer empirics, the number of people who are coming in at any given time is just large. We live in the information age. We live in an age where transport is really cheap. And yes, the, the track is arduous, but crossing the Mediterranean is very different from crossing the Atlantic, for instance. So more and more people are able to come from Islamic societies into Europe than ever before. And those people are young men between the ages of about 15 to 35, what in America we call the military age. That encounter is different, and that is the subject of prey. You, even if there was no, even if there were no cultural differences, there would be such issues as sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Let's just park that there and then go into the the groups that had preceded the 2015 influx or the breakdown of countries like Syria, the Arab Spring, that sort of thing. The guest workers who came in the 60s, who came in the 70s, those guest workers and their children from Muslim societies were having a really hard time assimilating into European societies. So you already had this... Um, what do you call it in monetary terms, um, this black hole where the integration wasn't taking place, these people were challenged. And on top of, ha- on top of that, you now have these new groups coming in, mainly young men. So the sexual violence that was, um, that Muslim men were told, hey, you guys, you need to change your act, we've moved on. It's now compounded by these thousands, hundreds of thousands of young men coming in. And in in this particular encounter, European leadership, the mainstream, just either they don't understand it or uh, in short, I'll just say they're too bewildered to do anything about it. One of your recommendations, uh, which I find utterly sensible, is that if you're gonna come here, we're going to spend some time teaching you the language, the culture, the idea of assimilation and how we behave here. I'm going to ask HR to chime in too, because he's got some experience on taking young men with lots of testosterone in them. And, uh, and you know, here's how you behave, damn it. And the military seems pretty good at that. Uh, and it's, it's what you're telling us is that Europe isn't really even trying. Uh, they just sort of presume everybody's going to be a nice liberal European, send you off and, and on your life. But in fact, you need to teach people here is how you behave. And- I think that what I'm saying is Europe is different from America and that Americans don't realize how profound that difference is. It is true that HR will get young men, say African-American community, different communities, and they'd be thrown at the military and they'll say, fix them. And what do you do in a continent where the word military is an insult? 
America is different from Europe. Europe is different from America. The differences are profound. I think as Americans, we, we barely get it. Okay. How, how do you guys take sort of un, un, uncouth young men from different backgrounds and you teach the, the white guys, we don't do discrimination here. And you teach everybody, we treat women with respect around here. Yes, there's sort of problems, but military seems to know how to do this. You know, John, we have we have a small professional force these days, so we have extremely high quality recruits. I mean, what's I guess what's astounding, an astounding statistic is I think it's something like sixty percent of young Americans can't qualify uh, to to enlist in our army these days. So we already have you know a very high quality recruit coming in, but as you suggested, people come with all sorts of different biases and prejudices and so forth, as you'd expect in, from any cross section of our society. But I think what happens is in in the army is they get in the military broadly they get they get really into the into teams in which men and women have to rely on one another and you see those prejudices and biases break down as they rely on on one another and and in a good you know army army unit you know a a, a unit takes on the quality of a family uh, and and when you have these tough challenging experiences that you go through together. Um, then, then uh, you, you, I think you, you begin to recognize that you shouldn't judge people by the color of their skin, right? You judge people by what they bring to the organization, what they bring to the fight. And, and when you're in battle, I mean, nobody's checking skin color or any other, any other sub-identity, right? You, you, you're all fellow servicemen and women, and you're in an organization where, where the man or woman next to you is willing to give everything, including their own lives for you. So I know there's a lot of discussion these days about, you know, have certain people with extreme views kind of infiltrated the military. I really don't think that that is a large scale problem. I think it's important for us to understand it better, know what the statistics are. But I think in general, the, the military is a great way to assimilate people into, into our, our common ethos within the military. And, and I think that Ayan's book points out that this is missing in Europe, this, this ability to do it and uh, to do that. And, 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 and I, you know, I, I think that we have to also look at the reasons why people come, you know, to, to our countries and, or, or, or the, they migrate. I, you know, I think you know, immigrants to the United States, I mean, I, I think that there are our lifeblood in our country because these are people who are often fleeing the kind of circumstances that Ayan had to flee. I mean, Ayan has made our country so much stronger as a citizen. I think even, I think we could say that about her husband as well. <laughs> and right. and uh, and they come to our no. country because I think the verdict's still out, Neil. But Ion, can I ask you a question here? We've we've identified the problem here. I'm interested in solutions. And here's what you write and pray. You say, "quote The main criterion for granting residents should be how far they are likely to abide by the laws and adopt the values of their host society." Uh, anybody can take a quiz and fake it, Ion. So how? does one actually prove if they're coming to Europe that they're going to adopt another nation's values, another nation's well, culture? Ayan goes further than that, which, which I just want to praise her for. Uh, we should be having yeah. migrants, economic migrants who want to come work and pay taxes, which is the one kind of migrants that aren't allowed in anymore. And you point to yeah. a, as Mike, all of our countries, the vast majority of our migrants are coming under this refugee asylum system, which, as you point out, was set up in the wake of World War II because of the horrible stuff we'd done to Jews in the 1930s. Uh, so you, you really point to that both who gets in and and what, how do we bring them in as, as important things to fix. Sorry, Bill. You just... <laughs> 
Your question was good, just needed more of it. <laughs> Go ahead, Ayla. Um, Okay, well, thank you, all of you. Thank you so much for uh, the praise and the warm welcome. And uh, it, it's the love is totally mutual. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's so different from having Neil on, by the way. So, in writing this book, when I was talking, first of all, in America, we use the word assimilation. In Europe, they use the word integration. Uh, because the word assimilation is tainted with that, uh, what happened during the Second World War and what they did to Jews who were fully assimilated. And so America is different. But immigration and the way we understand immigration in America is also different. And I wanted to respect those differences. Uh, America, immigration to America was always selective. Um, the selection was sometimes done by nature. I mean, you had to come here and found this country, and if you survived, you survived. And not many people could could do that. So from the get-go, it was selective. Then that, you know, end of 19th century, uh, beginning of 20th century immigration, if you look at, you know, Europe was the place people left. That was the miserable place. That is That was the place that is what now Africa is or the Middle East is. And you had to really be fit uh, be able to survive here, have family, not uh, rely on. There were selection criteria that made America not just powerful, but the most powerful country in the world, the most powerful economy in the world, the most powerful military in the world. And that's because there was that selection. Europe, and again, I'm trying, Bill, to respect the European context is they don't have a military system to speak of where, um, I don't know if you guys know J.D. Vance, if you don't, please have him on. Uh, it, yeah, J.D. Vance, a kid in Ohio, uh, subjected to all the challenges of a childhood that is very, very challenging regardless of skin color. Uh, when he tells his story, he says it was number one, his grandmother, and number two, the Marines that made him, got him where there, there is no such a thing as the Marines in many of these European countries. That's one story. Number two, there's all this guilt. And I know Americans also have their fair share of guilt, which Shelby still has written extensively about and which we're going through now, but it's a different kind of guilt. And I think a lot of the guilt that Europeans feel right now is informed by what happened during the Second World War to minorities like the Jews, gay people, etc., And now there is this pious attitude, we are going to atone for what we did back then by, by what? Uh, by doing nothing, by letting things rip, uh, by a show of compassion, but it's, it's a compassion that's attached to nothing. The conversation in Europe to this day is about European tribes trying to get along with one another, let alone get along with the rest of the world. I'm not kidding. The Danes and the Swedes, the Norwegians and the Finns, all together, less than 20 or 25 million people speak different languages and will tell you that the other is the other. No kidding. Whereas we have this country of 300 and what, 40, 50 million people that speak one language. So the, the way in America we think about immigration is so different. I don't think Americans really care why you come to America as long as you don't get in their way. And the selection, and these um, 
visas of trying to get the best and the brightest from India, from Asia, from parts of Europe. Uh, we are unashamed in America about saying we want the best and the brightest to come in. There's no one in Europe who will actually say that in polite society, that they want the best and the brightest. And even if you wanted the best and the brightest, really, you're coming from India, you're going to learn how to speak Dutch, Swedish, Finnish. I mean, think about that. And you do have to learn those languages to become a part of those societies. So all of the, it is, it's very complex, it's very layered. But what the Europeans will tell the Americans is, you Americans, you are cruel, you are self-serving, selfish, you shouldn't be uh, making these selections. It should be all about the people we feel the most sorry for. So then you get into the asylum refugee laws and treaties, which are just not fit for purpose today. Because how on earth are you going to tell the difference between a true asylum seeker coming in from Syria, if everybody's coming from Syria? How can you even tell the difference between who is a supporter of Assad and who is a supporter of the myriad uh, Islamist organizations? And do you want them? So for the Europeans to set up a vetting process, they have to get over themselves and over their own problems. Whereas I think in America, what I find appealing is it really doesn't matter where you come from. Yes, we do want the best and the brightest. And if we're going to take a quota of people from failed states, then we're going to do it on our terms. That's not where Europe is. Ayanna, if I could push you, a lot of the problem is not the immediate immigrants, it's the second generation. And that's what strikes me as the big difference. So, my wife's ancestors came from Sicily, an honor society <clears throat> full of all sorts of violence. They moved to a Italian neighborhood where nobody spoke English. <clears throat> uh, but by the second generation, their kids spoke English and barely remembered Italians and, by, and, and had married Irish. <laughs> uh, and, and so that seems to be what isn't happening in Europe, right? That the, that you, well, the it is, it is happening. stuck in the, uh, in the, no, it is happening. It is happening, but it has another sensitivity. So there were immigrants who came from Southern Europe, who came from Italy, Spain, Greece, Portugal. Um, those are well assimilated or they went back to their countries of origin because the countries of origin are doing much better than when they left. And the people who came from Vietnam, China, India, and they're doing fantastic. Uh, my colleague, uh, Ruth Copens, who's a professor of sociology, um, he points out that it actually in Europe has been, um, it's, it's a, a difficult experience to absorb or integrate or assimilate minorities from Muslim societies. Uh, he makes comparisons between Bangladeshis and Pakistanis on the one hand and Sikh and Indians on the other hand. And he says the Sikhs and the Indians left the exact same circumstances. They come to the UK, Sikhs and Hindus, Buddhists, uh, they're actually outperforming the natives. Uh, he goes to a place like Australia and he looks at the Lebanese communities that left Lebanon under the exact same circumstances, but some of them are Christian, some of them are Muslim. The Christian Lebanese are totally assimilated. The Muslim Lebanese are struggling to do the exact same thing. So, and on and on it goes. I'm and so it, would be proud. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that in, in terms of, you know, uh, trying to go through all the taboos and putting a knife through all the taboos, what you're going to see is that when Europeans ask, when they use the word immigration 
immigrant, asylum seeker, etc. It's a camouflage to cover up that some immigrants, first generation, second generation, people who came in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s of the last century are fully assimilated, whereas others are not, and they are Muslim. And so then, then the, the subject becomes, it, it becomes a no-go area, and it makes it ever more difficult, ever more difficult to have these conversations. And on top of that, Right now, South Europeans are not really going to Western Europe. If they get an opportunity, they might come here or their countries are going through the same circumstances. The largest number of people who are seeking asylum, refuge, migrating to Europe are Muslim, period. That's an empirical fact. The Muslims who came in the past, a small subset of them are well assimilated but a large group are not, the largest two thirds of them are not. So with that, along with the people who are coming in with the people who just came in, Europe does have a problem with Islam, Islamic culture, Muslim societies. And so we, we haven't gotten to the main point of the book, um, sexual violence. Uh, and yeah. you had some great stories about how hard it is to find a trial. You have some great stories about policing and, and the lack thereof. And, and I wonder if you want to, uh, I know Bill's itching. He's got more topics he wants to talk about, but uh, we, we, we got should, time. Don't worry. We got time. Good, good. Because yeah. we should mention that and, and what you think it portends also for the United States and, and how we think about um, these kinds of issues. The sexual violence is a very good example of this um, interesting encounter between Europe and Islam. Uh, men from Muslim societies come from repressed societies and when they come to Europe, not all of them act out. Some of them do. I would say today it's a minority, but enough to cause trouble for women in the open, what I would call the public space. So this is on sidewalks, in parks, train stations, Anywhere where when you get out of your house, you, as a woman, you should be feeling safe. At least some European women take it for granted, took it for granted for the last three or four decades. That is changing and it's changing because these young men, uh, as we talked about earlier, are being thrown into a situation that they can't control. Inspires them, incites them, incentivizes them to act out. And when they act out, there's no real pushback to stop that. I presume also when, when you have lots of immigrants who are young men and not young women, you have a bunch of young men who are not able to find partners. Yeah. Their own neighborhoods are look a lot like it looks back home. So Western women have trouble, but a woman living in one of those neighborhoods is, is subject to the same kind of problems as back home as well. And so the immigrant women living in a neighborhood that is dominated, say, uh, by uh, a Turkish community or a Moroccan community or a Somali community, the immigrant women adapt and have adapted quickly to those circumstances because they're familiar with it. The native white European women are still trying to figure out what the hell is going on. We were told that we are taking immigrants in because they're coming from 
failed states, from conflict, from civil war. And there's still that sense of compassion and welcome, you know, trying to, to be warm and welcoming. But then now they're confronted with this behavior and they're not getting the response that they feel as Europeans entitled to, which is just stop the sexual violence, stop these men from behaving in this particular way. And what I've seen throughout the years is that the leadership, the political leaders, the media leaders, academia, they don't know what to do. So they flee into denial. Uh, the class clashes of Europe come up. Most women who can afford to move away from these neighborhoods do move away. So the women who are left there are the ones who are in a sense, either they adapt just like the Muslim and other immigrant women, or, you know, they have to put up or shut up. That's well, adapt means give up all sorts of freedoms to go about your neighborhood unmolested, to go work, to marry whom you choose. Uh, you, you use the words adapt and it sounded yeah. uh, but much too benign. And I think to the, to, uh, for what is a nightmare for most European leaders is then those working class neighborhoods, those inhabitants are no longer voting for social democratic parties. They are voting for populists. They are voting for the extreme right. And when I, I had lots and lots of interviews with these women, most of them women, I, went, I reached out to the women, they are saying, I don't want to vote for a populist party or an extreme right-wing party, but they're the only ones who hear me. They're the only ones who are actually articulating what my problem is. And others say, I have been a victim of this type of sexual violence from immigrant men, but Ayan, I wanna make it very clear to you, I'm not anti-immigrant. I still vote for uh, working class parties, you know, parties on the left. I just want this to stop. And there's no one in terms of those people who uh, made it possible for the young men to come in they're not, to the young woman living in this neighborhood, she doesn't have to be young, but to the women living in this neighborhood, they don't seem to be trying hard enough to make, to get the men to stop behaving and to stop the men engaging in sexual violence. Everybody's been asking me, why don't you just write about sexual violence in general? I have no interest in writing about sexual violence in general. I just want to write about, and the things I look at are, what are these drivers of conflict? And right now, what is driving conflict in many parts of Europe is immigration. I'm pro-immigration. I want people to be able to come and start their lives over in a new place. But for me to be pro-immigration and to have a buy-in from the host societies, I think we do have to articulate the unintended consequences of immigration in general and how it affects subsets and minority groups in society. If we don't do that, we're going to give the whole thing to populists, right-wing groups, and Islamists, by the way. The, the, the violence is also, this is a small number, and I would presume you'll fill me in more, the, the young men who are rootless, not with a family, not with a job, not starting a new business, not the ones connected well, even to their own society are gonna be the ones uh, causing trouble, right? 
Absolutely right. If you're connected to your society, there's any kind of social control. And I want to, you know, when HR was talking about how some of these young men are snatched away from their families and then put in these madrasas, or, uh, you called them, you had a name for them. Brainwashing, brainwashing yeah. factories. Brainwashing factories. In Europe, they're not snatched away in the exact same way as uh, in Pakistan or Afghanistan. But when a kid drops out of school, the imams come to the families and they offer them an alternative pathway where they say, I will be able to help you as a family. I'll, I'll be able to help you uh, to keep your kid away from drug addiction, from crime in prison, and he should then come to my madrasa. So there are all these madrasas established all across Europe, and the parents are not, you know, there's no physical force used, but there's a lot of manipulation used to get to the exact same output, which is take the young man and stick him in a place where he's going to be brainwashed. And that's what the president of France is referring to when he talks about these people who are seeking separatism, Islamist separatist communities. They take the young men and even young women, and they say they have uh, on offer an alternative pathway to salvation through Islam. And the parents buy into that. So there's a social structure here for something that's deeply missing. Uh, you're always going to have a problem with an influx of young men torn apart from families without the civilizing influence of wives and, and, and families. But um, what you're saying is that there isn't another social structure. And what's filling the place is a radicalizing one, an, an imam, uh, a mosque that does not encourage uh, work hard, get ahead, you'll get married, start a business, learn the language, pay your taxes, but that encourages staying within uh, a, a fairly radical ideology, one that incidentally in, encourages the mistreatment of women. I think that's a great summary of exactly what's going on in Europe. And, and, and I think what I would like to highlight as well is, is they teach you know, a, 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 a doctrine, an ideology that is fundamentally intolerant. And so those yeah. who do not adhere to, the, to this perverted interpretation of Islam or takfir, right? They lay outside of the religion and therefore can be yeah. targeted. And, 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 they, and they're taught to hate these, these people, right? And, and so and it's really, it's a broad category of people, right? It's, it's, it's us, it's infidels, right? Those who don't, who are, who don't, don't believe uh, or, you know, but, but it's also rejectionists, right? Which is a whole sect within Islam. Right. And, and so I, I think that it's, it's really important for us to highlight the importance of tolerance among those who come to our countries. I mean, I think that the message ought to be not certainly and I know this is not Ayan's message. It's not that we don't want Muslims coming to, to any to any of these countries. We want people who who share our, our, our values, uh, share our principles. And in particular, it's it's tolerance. Right. It's the belief that people should have a say in, in how they're governed. It's a belief in, in, in rule of law. And John, as you alluded to, that. Confidence that in our society, in our free market economic system, you can work hard and build a better life for your children and your grandchildren. Those are the people we want, right? And, and so regardless of what their religion is. And, and uh, Ayan, would you maybe talk a little bit about the divisions within Islam, how you see it fall out? Because, of course, we know yeah. Islam is, is like, like Christianity, like any religion, is far from monolithic or homogeneous. And, 
And when did, did this reaction to modernity really pick, pick up steam? And and, uh, and and what are the factions as you see them? And and how do you see how do you see this playing out within Islam? Maybe even among the immigrants in Europe, uh, but also just more broadly yeah. across the Islamic world. Yeah. No, this is a great question again. And you see uh, um, different groups of people reacting differently. One thing I want to say about. Uh, Muslim societies is it's a young society. And so in the information age, a lot of these young people are accessing the internet. And I know right now in America, we're in a place where we're concluding that maybe social media is all bad, bad, bad. Uh, but in some ways it's really not that bad. And people who would never ever have been able to exchange experiences are doing that. And it's really interesting to watch what's going on in Islamic societies right now, where young people are walking away from the radical, uh, intolerant um, seventh century purists. Um, the, many of them have been exposed to this during the ISIS years and uh, during the Al Qaeda years. Uh, it's so interesting to watch how many people are asking questions about Muhammad's morality, is the Quran really right or wrong? Is it a book written by human beings or is it a book uh, you know, that came from God? Really interesting to watch this. And I think that the European governments and societies are wasting this amazing opportunity where they could tap into that change. A lot of people are voting with their feet. They're coming to Europe because they're attracted to the values that they associate with Europe, and they're not being taught the ins and outs of these values. And uh, some of these young people then get frustrated, they get lost, and that is how the Islamists then suck them in. So HR, it is so important that you keep harping on that, that there is a lot of change happening within uh, Muslim societies and among Muslims, great deal of diversity, young people, impressionable, I totally agree with you. Um, but we have uh, uh, both in America, I think it's a big deal. I think wokeism, critical theory, critical race theory, that stuff is a big deal in America, a bigger deal here than in Europe. I think in America, wokeism is probably going to get us to a place where we miss that opportunity. I hope we don't. Yeah. In Europe, they it, it frustrates me to no end to say you know you've made your way from Syria these people once they get in they're talking they're using uh, terms like we want freedom we want democracy we want freedom of speech uh, we want equality between men and women and then they're put in on campuses called asylum seekers centers or something like that. They're not allowed to learn the language. They're not allowed to work. They're introduced to nothing. They're just hemmed in like a bunch of animals in a zoo and they're, they're fed. They're given food, they're given shelter, they're given the bare minimum of healthcare and then they're left to their own devices. Like, how can you do that? It's mind boggling. You would just go into these campuses evangelizing about European norms and values. That's what I would do. But you can't do that if you're uncertain yourself about those values. So every European I've talked to, heads of state, ministers, editors in chief, 
they keep asking me whether they're from Germany or Sweden or the UK, they say, who are we to force ourselves on them? And I have to, to point it out to them. You're not forcing yourself on them. These people have come, they've crossed the Mediterranean. Many of their friends and colleagues have drowned. They, they want this. Give it to them before the Islamists get in there, before the radical right gets in there. Come on. And so I think that's the point I've been trying to make with my book is integration is possible. Um, we have the resources, we're just not alloc allocating them in the right way. We have the superiority of the values as people are subscribing to, we're just not doing it. And, uh, and that's a failure of leadership. It's a failure of... You, you know, Ayan, I was going to ask you, it's, it's, a, it's also a failure of, of, of just the, the way that we conceive of ourselves as, as human beings. You've been so such a powerful voice on this. And, you know, I had the privilege, I would say, of, of interacting with with great people from across the greater Middle East and South Asia. And, and I was always struck by our common humanity, right? And, and what yeah. we want for our children and so forth. And, and I think what the problem is with, you know, wokeism and critical race theory is that these are people who want to define you really only by either your skin pigmentation <laughs> or whatever category you fall into. And, and this is the, and the others who want to, to, to categorize people and judge them by what category they fall into, you know, are some of these, these jihadists and so forth. Right. So I, I, I think what's missing is, is a greater sensitivity to our, our common humanity, but there, there's much more that can bring us together as people, especially if, as you mentioned, we share common principles right, among across our groups and, and what I've found is, you know, it was always the vast majority uh, of the people in, in the countries in, in which I had the privilege of serving uh, who did share our, our principles. And, and they, they were victims of these groups who wanted to categorize people very narrowly, right, and, and pit people against one another. And they want power. Those people want power. And they want to get to a place of power by exploiting the vulnerabilities of the groups that they create. Uh, I mean, I don't think I've ever really seen myself through my skin color until all these people started pointing it out all the time or my gender all the time. It's like I share more with you as my colleagues at Hoover and my friends than I share with many people of my skin color or my gender. I mean, it's just a fact. Uh, and and it is, it, it's very important to point out, to make it, you know, to say, you guys, you, you're just after power. That's, that's what you want to do. Just like uh, the Islamists, by the way, the Islamists don't even hide it. They say, yeah, yes, we are after power. <laughs> and then they tell you what, once they get that power, what they're going to do with it, which makes it easy to refute them. Uh, but if you look at the critical race theory people, the critical justice theory people, they, they're invoking justice, equality, uh, inequality. I mean, all sorts of things that most of us agree with. And most of us think, of course, inequality, wherever it is, is something you need to fight. Um, but if you then listen closely to what they're saying, you, you find out, no, 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 they're not really interested in improving the position of Blacks, women, transgender people, LGBTQ people. They are only interested in getting themselves to a place of power where they can distribute or redistribute wealth. 
Right, we are starting to run out of time on the show here, and I'm going to do something that moderators never should do. I'm going to ask you a topic that's another show in itself, and it's the reaction to your book, Cancel Culture, if you will. I'd like yeah. to know two things. Number one, your thoughts on the New York Times review. I think they use the word fear-mongering in the review. But then second, uh, what happened in San Francisco last month, Ion? Uh, you, were, uh, you gave a talk at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, virtual talk at the Commonwealth Club with Barry Weiss, who has their own history at the New York Times, I might add. Uh, Care tried to shut it down. And I'm curious, Ion, is if you think these tactics work, because it seemed to me that uh, it looked like kind of a silly exercise. And if it succeeded in one thing, it probably succeeded in selling more books. Group, uh, they were approached by the Council of American Islamic Relations, which is part of the Muslim Brotherhood, I would say sort of the benign public relations uh, arm of the Muslim Brotherhood in the United States. And they tried to deploy the tactics that cancel culture would try and deploy. I was there with Barry Wise. Barry Wise left the New York Times in a very emotional, confrontational way. We had a back and forth. And uh, for me, the goal was I do want. I don't want us to cancel this event because I don't want to give a victory to the Council of American Islamic Relations. And in the end, I want to say I'm grateful um, and proud that the Council, the Commonwealth Society, stood up to care. That they said, "You're welcome to to be a part of this. You're welcome to ask our questions." You're welcome to, you know, they tried to accommodate them as much as they could, they, but they weren't going to cancel me. And then CARE proceeded to continue the Twitter campaign, the social media campaign against uh, the Commonwealth uh, Club. And I don't think it's going to work. And I think it's an illustration of it's better to stand up to these groups mm-hmm. than yeah. to some because when you stand up for whatever reason, it dis- the whole campaign disappeared. They put so much effort and money into it beforehand. But once the event had taken place, I don't know, the whole conversation stopped. I don't even know where it went. The New York Times review, so many people have spoken about this. It was uh, difficult for me to read it. It's not, I, I had the same uh, response that Douglas Murray had, which was, did you review the book that you were hired to review? Or did you read some other book? Uh, But the greater picture is that the New York Times uh, has embarked on this crazy business model where instead of journalism, which doesn't make money, advertisers aren't going there, they decided to go post-journalist. So they're appealing to people's underbellies. And right now, the underbelly that's driving and churning out emotion, it's critical race theory. And that particular reviewer was she was writing for that audience. She wasn't reviewing my book. And I'm glad I'm able to see that. Unfortunately, though, it's making me cynical. And I hate to be cynical. So next time, I might not be as refreshing as you guys have been enjoying seeing me be. <laughs> well, Ayan, we are, we're running up against a deadline here. But I would let uh, uh, perhaps get your closing thoughts with this. You wrote a really, really remarkable op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last September. Uh, the headline was, What Islamist and Wokist Have in Common? And I encourage uh, anyone who is interested in Ayan's work to read this because it is just remarkable in how she lays out the contrast and the similarities. Ayan, how are we going to have an intellectual conversation about this, this issue, which is not going to go away anytime soon, if at every corner there are going to be attempts to shut down that conversation? I think the, the thing we have to do is not shut it down. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, all of us at the Hoover Institution have been confronted with people saying, I want to shut so and so down. I want to have that person cancelled. I'm not going to engage with what that person has to say, his or her ideas, uh, their publications. And once you hear that kind of argument, and it goes along the lines of that person has to be denounced and condemned beyond redemption, not for what he or she says, not for his or her work, mm-hmm. but for who they are. I don't, I don't know how that's different from the madrasas you were talking about, HR. <laughs> the message is different, but the outcome is the same. It's like we're not going to engage with ideas when actually, actually we are paid to engage with ideas. It's what universities do. So the short answer is the only way to confront these people is to say, we're not going to cancel anyone. We're going to engage with everyone and we're going to call you out if you refuse to do that. Ion, this was a fascinating conversation. I think uh, HR and Neil are going to have a conversation about whether or not to cancel Neil Ferguson on the show and have you sit in as a good good fellow. So careful what you wish for, Ion. (laughs) It's very dainty now, Neil, because he's been looking after the children and cooking dinners. So be very soft on him, please. (laughs) A week of haggis, that'll certainly make the children welcome you back. Yeah, I don't know if you put a Scotsman cooking dinner for you, Ion. <laughs> Ion, thanks very much uh, for coming on today. Safe travels and uh, best luck for the books. And uh, I really hope the next time you're on, we can say New York Times bestseller because it will kill them to have to put your name on that list. But that's <laughs> reason itself to buy the book. So that's it for this episode of Goodfellows. We'll be back soon with a new episode, a new conversation. Ion Hersey's book, Pray, the full title of it actually is Pray, Immigration, Islam, and Erosial Women's Rights, available wherever good books are sold. Please go get it. It's a great read. Ion also hosts a podcast, the Ion Hersey Ali podcast on Apple, just launched in February. It won't take you long to binge listen it if you want to. And you can also find her good work on the Hoover Daily Report, which you can access by going to hoover.org, www.hoover.org. On behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, H.R. McMaster and John Cochran, and our special guest today, Ian Hersey Alley, we wish you and yours the very best. Stay safe and stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week, with or without Neil. Thank you.